welcome to episode 18 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. I'm Robert Daniels, and I'm the host of this show, where we focus on individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. They are people who are giants in the history of Christendom. These are Christian Hall of Famers. Today's episode is a bit of a change from the norm. Rather than focusing on one subject for the entire show, I'm going to be covering several different people in one episode. These are people that are interesting and noteworthy, but perhaps they just don't have enough information or material available about their lives to compose an entire episode around them. But I still want to bring them to your attention as exemplars of what we're trying to go for here on Giants of the Faith. First up is James Jipponema, which I guarantee I'm pronouncing wrong. I couldn't find a pronunciation guide online. But he's also known as James Japanma. James was an Aboriginal Australian born in 1902. His family arrived in the Roper River Mission sometime around 1908, fleeing persecution and the massacre of Aboriginals at the hand of the Eastern and African Cold Storage Company. The Roper River Mission was established by the Church Missionary Society in Australia as a place of refuge for Aboriginals that were under persecution from white settlers. James took an interest in the Christianity that the missionaries practiced and was the first convert in the community, being baptized on May 11, 1913, at about 11 years old. James was educated by the missionaries and served as a translator between them and the Aboriginal residents of the mission. Within a few years, James was serving as a teaching assistant at the mission school and in the 1930s was often the only teacher for the community when there were no staff missionaries available. In 1941, a woman named Helen Adler arrived to take over the school, and she was pleased with the job that James had done without any formal teaching, training, or support. Her arrival freed James to become the first Aboriginal missionary in Australia. He traveled to the surrounding communities and cattle stations, preaching and teaching the word, much of which he had memorized. He even traveled over 2,200 miles to the Rose River area to reach the Nungabuyu people. Again, apologies for the pronunciation. Now, that's no mean feat today, much less in 1940s Australia. Now, we remember and honor James as an important link between the native people of Australia and the Christian mission of reaching the world in Christ's name. Now, next up, we have two men, Stephen Langton and Robert Estian. Now, these men were divided in history by centuries, but they are connected by the chapter and verse divisions that we use in the Bible. Stephen Langton was Archbishop of Canterbury and lived from 1150 to 1228. He was a leader in the struggle against England's King John. He wrote the first draft of the Magna Carta, and he was instrumental in getting the king to sign it. But that's not what we're interested in here. It's self-evident, but not often considered that the books and letters that make up the Bible were not written in chapter and verse. They are generally full texts. Now, Langton was not the first to subdivide the Bible to more easily digested chunks, but his division into chapters is the one that has survived to modern times. He tried to divide the books into different sections where the narrative makes sense to divide them. While not perfectly successful, the chapters we use do provide a convenient way to easily access and study scripture. Likewise, Robert Estian, who lived from 1503 to 1559, has left a legacy that aids Bible readers. 
and like Langton, Estian wasn't the first to divide chapters into verses. The Dominican scholar Santi Pagnini had tried it earlier, but his verses were long and convoluted. Estian's numbering system is the one that stuck. He added verses to his 1551 Greek New Testament and 1553 French Bible, adding them in the margins. In 1555, he produced a version of the Vulgate which had the verse numbers integrated right into the text. The first English Bible to use chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible, published in 1560. And that's the way the majority of Bibles have been printed ever since. Now we come to a woman whose impact almost cannot be measured. Helena Augusta, the mother of Constantine the Great. Helena was born sometime around 246 AD, possibly in Greece. She came from outside the noble Roman families to marry Emperor Constantius. Her background isn't well understood, except that it is believed to be somewhat humble. In later life, she was affectionately referred to as a stable girl or innkeeper, which is a possible hint at her parentage. At any rate, she gave birth to Constantine on February 27, 272, and was divorced by Constantius in 289 and put aside from the public view. Constantine ascended to the throne in Rome in 306, and Helena is said to have converted to Christianity shortly after. In 312, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, basically legalizing Christianity in the Roman Empire and returning seized properties to Christians that had undergone persecution. Constantine's softening stance surely was influenced by his mother's personal faith as she returned to public life that same year. It's really hard to overstate the impact that this had on the Western world, and the world at large. The emperor's embrace of the faith gave it a legitimacy in many people's eyes, and allowed it to spread farther and faster than it otherwise could. Once Constantine publicly supported Christianity, he gave his mother unlimited access to the treasury to seek and find Christian relics and locations. From 326 to 328, Helena traveled throughout Palestine. She was responsible for the construction of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and the Church of Eleona at the Mount of Olives. She also supposedly located the location of Christ's tomb under a pagan temple. She had the temple destroyed, and then her son ordered the construction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Helena allegedly discovered many relics throughout her journeys, the wood from Christ's cross, nails from his crucifixion, and more of the like. Some of these are still on display today in Rome. Regardless of the veracity of these artifacts, Helena's impact on the world is great. Her influence on her son led to his surprising conversion and changed the course of the Western world. She died around 330 AD, and her palace was converted to the Basilica of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem after her death. Helena is a woman whose place in history is largely neglected. It's not that she's not known, it's just that I don't think that she's given the honor that she's due. Her impact on your life and mine is pretty amazing. Now finally we come to Albert the Great, or Albertus Magnus. Albert is most commonly known today as Thomas Aquinas' teacher, but he was a giant of his own time, and he's credited with influencing Aquinas' work through both the knowledge and wisdom he imparted, as well as the environment for learning that he fostered for his students. Albert was born, perhaps, in 1193 in Bavaria in a castle. He was educated at the University of Padua 
and in 1223 became a Dominican over the objections of his family. He held several teaching positions throughout the region and in 1245 earned his theology masters. This allowed him to gain a permanent position at the University of Paris. It was in Paris that Albert taught Aquinas. Aquinas was often referred to as a dumb ox for his slow ways and his lumbering style. Albert saw this dumb ox's potential in great mind, though, and he prepared Aquinas for the great works that he would complete. During this time, Islam began to spread and make inroads in Europe, bringing along with it Aristotle's writings. Albert was the first to study and comment academically on Aristotle, and was critical to the role Aristotle's writings played in Aquinas' work. Most of our modern access to Aristotle was made possible by Albert's translations and his works on the subject. Albert studied and wrote on a vast array of subjects, philosophy, law, theology, astronomy, botany, geography, and more. His approach to the natural sciences is actually quite modern, and he founded the study and classification of minerals. He developed a curriculum for use by the Dominicans to teach systematic theology to those not trained in it. He was also interested in things that today we would consider pseudosciences, like astrology and phrenology, but those in no way detract from his work on other subjects. Albert was made Bishop of Regensburg, where he served for a few years, before resigning his position to return to teaching and study. Albert is one of only 36 doctors of the Catholic Church. Now, this distinction is reserved for one who has made some great contribution to theology or church doctrine. Even before his death, he was referred to by his contemporaries as Albert the Great, a testament to the breadth and depth of his knowledge and understanding. His greatest achievement might be awakening and fostering of Thomas Aquinas' greatness, but he is also recognized as a giant in his own right. He was preceded in death by his friend and student in 1274, and he died himself in 1280 at around 87 years old. And that's it for this slightly different episode of Giants of the Faith. I hope you've enjoyed this brief look into the life and ministry of these five people. If you have any questions, comments, or corrections, please send them along to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, God bless. 